Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Thank you, guys. Hey, thank you for joining us today, Sunday morning, or whether you're connecting us uh, with us during the week. I got to warn you about something. I've seen these statistics, you know, as we're kind of getting to know this new technology, discovering YouTube and all their analytics. And so if you're into detail and stuff like that, it gives you a lot of detail. And so if you're on your cell phone right now, I got to tell you, you're not going to survive. That's what the stats tell us. If you're on your cell phone, you have a watching time. Ready for this? The average is six minutes. And so I love you too much. And so I'm just going to say, hey, get off the cell phone, jump onto a computer. Computers last longer. And if you're watching it on a TV right now through YouTube, you guys are solid. You're going to last about 35 minutes. Just want to let you guys know that. Anyways, hey, we love you. Uh, There's a verse that has been sticking out to me. As we walk in these days, you know, the simplicity of God's word needs to become clear. And God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. That comes out of Luke chapter 6. And so he says, be merciful as our heavenly Father is merciful. But I hope these words, the vision of God's kindness and his goodness to us, it says he is kind. God is kind and good to the ungrateful and to the wicked. God is kind to us in our impatience. God is kind to us in our frustrations. And he tells us there are two things that matter in these days. We should love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the way that shows up in life is we are to go out into the world and today to learn to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. I think if we could anchor our souls in that truth, we'll do well in these days. A couple things I want to update you on. First of all, after the service, we do have a virtual foyer. I know somebody's been posting the foyer link in the comments side. I think it's over on this side, or maybe it's over on this side. I'm not sure which side it's on. I can't see it right now. But anyways, the foyer link's going to be there. If it's not there, you can't find it. You're wondering, hey, I want to see people. I want to see people's face after the service. Go to our webpage bergenparkchurch.org, right there on the front of the page, you'll say virtual foyer, it'll open Zoom, you'll see us, we'll be able to see you after the service, so join us for that. Also at 1030 Summit Kids, if you've got kids, you can go right through the Zoom and check out that as well. Hey, also, I don't know if you had the chance to do this, I got outside with my family, we celebrated the graduates as they drove by, that was pretty fun, it was fun to see some people we recognized We need to celebrate our graduates in this weird, strange time that they're in. I mean, many of us remember those days of walking across the stage. Remember the cap and the gown. Remember uh, the proms and all those things. Well, some of these things uh, kids today are going to miss. And so we want to celebrate them. This week we're going to be revealing. We'll send it out in uh, an email, some ways we're going to support our graduates. Next week we'll get a a video up of who our graduates are. But we want to take the chance to celebrate them And so if you know a graduate in your life, there's somebody, a friend, somebody in our church, let's reach out to them. Let's pour out our love and support on their lives as they transition to a new phase in life in a strange time. And then finally, people are asking, hey, when are we going to gather again? And you ready for this? I don't know. 
Honestly, that's just the truth. Now, here's where we are right now. Uh, I listened to a call this week with Governor Polis, and we do want to follow. We want to have a good reputation in our community. We want to lead for. We want to gather together. That's where our heart's desire is, but we also want to be a good witness in this community. And so we're waiting on them, hopefully in June. This is what we're hearing. Hopefully in June, the numbers are going to rise from 10. we got about 10 in the room right now. I won't count. About 10. Anyways, we're going to go up to 25, maybe up to 50. We are hoping possibly next week, and again, we'll send out an email. Possibly next week, we'll do a drive-through service just to kind of see each other. We'll do some music out in the parking lot. This is going to be 11 o'clock next Sunday. So if you get a chance to watch this, then you can kind of get cleaned up and dress, brush your teeth. Get in your car. Be here at 11 o'clock. We'll do some music. Maybe it's just a short devotional. But that will be next Sunday. And then again, in June, we're hoping that we'll be have a chance to uh, connect together, to gather together, maybe in groups of 50. And we are ready to do up to six, seven services if that's what it takes. Because on the one hand, when you walk into the service on a Sunday in this new world, uh, it's not so much what you're comfortable with, it's what others are comfortable with. That's what it means to love others as we love God and we love ourselves. And so put that in your mind. We're ready to gather. We're excited to do that. But let's do it in a way that allows us to be a good witness and also to love uh, the people in our community. Habakkuk. Are you ready? I hope you have a Bible. We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 3. I have to tell you, I've been excited for chapter 3. Chapters 1 and 2 are pretty dark because in chapter 1, he's wrestling. In chapter 2, he's waiting. But here's the beauty. In chapter 3, Habakkuk is worshiping. We're going to come to Habakkuk chapter 3, and we're going to find this prayer of revival This prayer of restoration, his heart has come alive. But here's the beautiful picture of Habakkuk. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed in his world. The pandemic's still going on. He's lost his job. He's lost family. He's lost loved ones. The Babylonians are still coming. Those bad days are still ahead. God hasn't changed. But what has changed is Habakkuk's heart has changed. His focus has changed. In chapter 1, he's focused on the problems. In chapter 2, he's waiting on God. But in chapter 3, he sees a vision of God, a promise of God. And it begins to bring peace and joy and satisfaction in his heart. Because he knows in verse 14 of chapter 2, one day, one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He has this vision for life, and you need a vision in a day of trouble. If you don't have a vision of God or a vision of life in the day of trouble, something to anchor, to walk by faith in. He had this promise in chapter two, in the midst of darkness, one day God is gonna come and he's gonna make all things right. And his presence will cover the earth as the water covers the sea, but he also knew that he needed to be still and simply know that God is still in control. He is in his temple, and therefore all the earth should be silent before him. He anchored his heart in these promises, and then in chapter 3, what we, what we find essentially is a song. It's, a, it's poetry. He has this vision of God, and he's singing it back to him. And so we're going to see how Habakkuk changes. We're going to discover why he changed, and then hopefully... Uh, through this is we'll discover how we can join him in that change. So we're going to discover that he changed, how he changed, and then how we also can join him in that change. As I've been going through these days and reflecting on the way that I've responded, I think I said it last week that I think the saddest thing that could happen is we could go through this time and nothing changes in us. Now, if we're walking with God, that's a good thing, but 
I think this is a time to examine, a time for self-examination, a time to get deeper into, into God's word, to get deeper into prayer, to press into his character, and to allow God to speak in these days, maybe in a way that we haven't been listening in the past because we had so much going on. We had soccer practice and t-ball practice, and we're going here, we're going there, and that stuff's over. And we have the chance to be still before the Lord, to say and declare on Monday and Tuesday, God, your presence is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I'm going to claim to hold on to that. I want to see you. I want to see that day. But help me to walk by faith in the times that we're in. That's the hope that we have. And I hope as you're walking through these days, you're also reaching out to each other. You cannot do this alone. The church is not the church unless it's gathered. But it can be gathered in small groups. It can be gathered on the phone. It can be gathered in Zoom. But you've got to be with others who are pursuing the same passion and purpose in life. So let's jump into this passage. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. Habakkuk chapter 3. In verse 1, the word of the prophet. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigeneth, or something like that. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, I do fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, from the Holy, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. I want to pause for just a moment. You'll notice if you look in your Bible, you may see the word LORD is in all caps. And what that signifies is the personal name of God. It's the personal name that God gave to Moses before he revealed his salvation. See, before Moses led the nation of Israel out of captivity in Egypt, God revealed to Moses his personal name, his name of intimacy, his name of covenant relationship. And so when Moses said, you know, God, who am I gonna say is, when I go to the people and they're saying, well, you're just Moses, who am I gonna tell, who am I gonna say has sent me? And say, I am has sent you. See, God is revealing his personal name to Moses before he rescues him. And in the same way in chapter 3, Habakkuk is remembering God's personal name because what he's going to do is rehearse the gospel. Now, you may wonder, how can he rehearse the gospel when Jesus is still some 500 years to come? Well, what Habakkuk's going to do, he's going to rehearse the gospel he knows. Now, you may not realize this, but much in the New Testament is based, certainly in terms of salvation, on the language of the book of Exodus. And so what he's going to do, Habakkuk, he's remembering God's personal, his covenant, covenantal name. And then he's going to remember God's faithfulness in the story of the Exodus as he rescued his people out of captivity, out of slavery, out of sin, out of darkness, and brought them into the promised land and gave them there his presence and his word. Habakkuk, what he's going to do in this prayer is to remember and rekindle God's faithfulness. And I want you to notice, if you'll jump back quickly in verse 2. Notice how he starts off. He says, Lord, I have heard the report of you and of your work. Now, he, again, the report is what God has done in the past. And I do fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. Here's what he's saying. God, do again today what you have done in the past. He's praying, let thy kingdom come. Let thy will be done. He is praying a prayer of revival. God, glorify yourself through us and manifest your power 
If you go back to chapter 1, verse 5, do something in our times that will amaze us, that will astound us. Father, show your glory and show your work through us again. What's happening in chapter 3 is the heart of Habakkuk is in this place of rejoicing, of praising and revival. And what's so fascinating and amazing and sometimes confusing for me is his life is a mess. His life is a mess. And when we get to the end of chapter 3, he says some words that, that I'm afraid to pray. Even if my job is gone, even if my family is gone, even if, I am, even if all things fall apart, even if this continues, God, I'm going to continue to rejoice in you. I'm going to continue to hold on to you. He has a daring faith in God's presence and a vision of God that he says, God, in these times, you are enough. You are sufficient. And if all I have is a reminder of your faithfulness in the past, it's enough for me to rekindle my love, to rekindle my joy, to remind myself of who you are. You know, I've been reading a commentary by uh, Nancy Lee DeMoss, and she captures the story of Habakkuk this way. She says, Habakkuk wants to see God's work flourish in the earth. He's concerned no longer about his own agenda or his own kingdom, or the Jewish kingdom, or the Babylonian kingdom for that matter. He's concerned about God's kingdom, God's agenda. What's on God's heart? What's on God's mind? What will make God look great and glorious? There's a prayer I came across this week, and I read it, and I can't remember, it's in a a devotional, but it says this, Lord, whatever it takes for you to be seen through me, felt through me, heard through me, living through me, active through me, moving through me, do it in my life today. Habakkuk is that place where he's saying, God, once again, revive it. Do in our times what you have done in the past. And God, I have the faith and the trust in you that no matter what happens, I'm gonna hold on to your promises. I'm gonna hold on to your faithfulness. I'm gonna hold on to you. Church, people, folks, whoever you are, what are you holding on to? What are you holding on to? That is not simply sand that shifts under the feet, not simply culture that moves and comes, not simply money that comes and goes or health. What are you holding on to that is a firm foundation? See, Habakkuk in times of trouble, what happened that led to joy is he learned to walk by faith in the promises of God. He learned to anchor into scripture. He learned to anchor into God's character and it brought him joy and it brought him a vision of revival that now is bringing life in times of devastation and hardship. See, scripture wants to teach us, God wants to teach us what does it look like to walk with him in troubled times. And so let's jump back into the passage. We're gonna go to verse five as he's going to remind himself, not of God's faithfulness in this day, but in the past to rekindle his faith and hope and what God might do in the present and in the future. So jump back, verse five. And here again, he's describing the Exodus story, the plagues. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations, and then scattered, and then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low, for his were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger 
against the rivers, your indignation against the sea, when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation, he's referring to the crossing of the Red Sea. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed, and the raging waters swept on. The deep grave forth gave forth its voice. It lifted its hand on high. The sun, the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You thrashed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced him with his own arrows, the heads of his warriors. You came in like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, so he's responding to what he has seen. I hear my body trembles, my lips, lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my, into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Now the language of, of chapter three in many ways is incredibly violent. It's, it's visceral, you see it, you feel it. The anger, the frustration, the brokenness. But I want to understand when we read passages like this, often for the modern mind, it's very confusing. Because see, this is the language of someone who has gone through great experiences of suffering and injustice. This is how a heart cries out when you've lost your family. This is how a heart cries out when you've lost your income, you've lost your job, you've lost your hope. And you're crying out to God and you're reminding yourself of his faithfulness in the past. And you're saying, God, rekindle it in our days. Do in our times once again show up in power and in might in our days in a way that reminds us of what you've done in the past. And after he has prayed these prayers, reminding himself of God's faithfulness, watch where he goes in verse 17. And this is an amazing, beautiful picture of faith in the times of trouble. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail in the fields, yield no food, the flock be cut off in the fold, there be no herd in the stalls, I've lost my job, my 401k has died, the stock market is tanked, there's nothing in the backyard, the front yard, the cars are gone, it's been repossessed, there's no hope for the future. Even if everything falls apart, because you are faithful, God, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. Notice the language. I can't make my feet. He's my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. When does he do that? See, he's not describing a great day. He's describing the worst day. And it's in those days, God, you're sufficient. You're enough. Your strength is enough that my feet will be like the deer's. And in those days of trouble, he will make me tread on high places. This is the exaltation of the soul, the mind, the emotion in the presence of God, worshiping him and saying, God, you're mine, I'm yours, and you're enough. And no matter what happens, even though life be a mess, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
This is a prayer, a prayer of passion, a prayer of desire, a prayer of the longing of the heart for God, saying, God, you're enough, you're sufficient. In these days, is God sufficient? Is he enough? You know, it reminds me of the language of Paul, actually, in Philippians. We went through the book of Philippians, a, it seems like a long time ago, but it wasn't that long. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I consider losing everything compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes to the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And then he says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul had this unceasing, greedy hunger for the presence of God. He had a passion and hunger to be in God's presence. And you see this not just in scripture, but throughout history. One of my favorite books is St. Augustine's Confession. I love Augustine because Augustine was a mess. Augustine is called the struggling saint. He's the one who famously or infamously prayed, uh, God grant me chastity, but just not yet. You know, God, I want you, but I don't want you. He's somebody that struggled with the passions of the flesh. He, he had a hard time giving up the desires of the body, the desires of drink. And yet in the confessions later on, he writes these words of God. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys, which I had once feared to lose. You notice the change that's happened. I feared to lose these things. Now they're fruitless joys. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy, you drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasures, though not to flesh and blood. You outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any of the secrets in our heart. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men, who see all honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation, you who are sweeter than all pleasures. Scripture says, taste. You want to know God's goodness? It's not in the mind. It's in the experience. Taste and see that the Lord is good. There is a rapture and intimacy in God's presence. It's why he calls us his bride. Do you realize the language of bridegroom and bride anticipates the moment of intimacy, of pleasure, of oneness? This is God's unashamed desire for us and he wants to kindle in us an unashamed desire for him that when the two come together, that is where intimacy and joy in his presence is found. Augustine experienced it. Paul experienced it. And how about this one? John Owen, one of my favorites, he experienced it as well. And he said it this way. Oh, to behold the glory of Christ. Herein would I live. Herein would I die. Herein would I dwell in my thoughts and my affections until all things below become unto me a dead and deformed thing. No, no, no way suitable for affectionate embraces. God, would you become so glorious that everything else would become like something which is dead. That's not worthy of my affections 
towards you. We see in Habakkuk, we see in Augustine, we see in Paul, we see in the Bible, we see in David, the hunger of a heart. And in John Owen, the hunger of a heart for God's presence is that hunger in us. Are we learning to stir, to cultivate a passion for God's presence, for his truth, for who he is? Are we seeking to be in his presence? You know, if not, then maybe we need to do a little self-examination. I wanna just take a few moments and maybe we need to examine where we are and why we are there. Maybe begin to reflect on what is it in our life? What are we chasing? Where do we find our affections running to? What are our desires? When you wake up, what's the first thing that you think about? And then how are you learning to train those affection, train those desires, train that, that initial thought to run towards God and to be in his presence instead of running towards the things in the world? Why don't we share this passion? Here's one thought. I think for some of us, we just think it's strange. You know, you see somebody who's passionate for God and you're like, hey, buddy, uh, calm down. Listen, let's not get crazy here. Let's, let's not get too excited. You see that passion, it's sad. Even in the church, sometimes you see somebody who's passionate for God and we think that that is the, we think that's, that, that's a strange thing and yet we get, how passionate do we get for sports? I mean, right now we're, we're kind of crying. We're watching even old documentaries, right? We love uh, watching things in the past just to remind ourselves of those glory days. We get excited. We invest ourselves in language of the markets, the language of money, the language of our career, the language of our kids. We learn to celebrate these things. And in celebrating them, they give us a sense of joy. But how much more do we need to learn to celebrate God and his presence? And I think part of the reason it's strange is because we're not used to keeping up the discipline of having that relationship with the Father. Relationships require discipline. I mean, the discipline of listening. When you come home and when you used to come home from work and you listen to your husband, you listen to your wife, that requires discipline, doesn't it? When you're coming home and you've got these frustrations, these thoughts in your head and the kids are going crazy and you gotta cook dinner, all of that requires a discipline. But what happens in the family is that discipline increases the strength of the relationship, the intimacy. That's what has to happen in our walk with God. We have to have that discipline that when we get up, it's kind of like the kids are screaming and everything's a mess and we have to learn to still the heart. Sometimes to spend five minutes and simply say, God, you're my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you. Even if we're not there to say, this is where I want to be. I wanna love you with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. Father, I wanna be calm and be still in your presence. Sometimes we think that that passion is strange, but second, Another thing I think comes up in our life is that we don't know how to deal with our ongoing brokenness. We don't know. I think sometimes we assume that our growth is always going to be linear. You understand what I mean? That we have this problem. Sometimes we have an experience of temptation. We find ourselves in a place of brokenness and we think if I have enough faith, I should never experience this again. And my growth process should be, okay, problem, success, growth, right? Problem, success, growth. But I should never be going back to problems. I, I should never find myself struggling with the same thing over and over again. I think it's unrealistic to see spiritual growth as merely linear. No, what happens is the person that's walking by faith, they find themselves often in the same place. Sometimes they find themselves struggling with the same temptation. But what they do not do is they do not give up on the source of their salvation. They don't stop confessing. 
they don't stop running to others in confession. They don't stop going to church. They don't stop reading their Bible. Because see what happens is the more that you run to God, you find that you're becoming stronger in other areas. Though sometimes there's weakness, and though sometimes we may fall back in the same patterns, you find that the more that you're turning to God, you're becoming stronger. You're starting to see the triggers in your own life. You're starting to see those moments. You can actually start to, to feel the temptations come on before you get there. And you find that maturity and strength are growing as you're relying upon God in moments of weakness. Some of the troubles we have is we don't know how to deal with our own brokenness. We're supposed to be good Christians and yet we're struggling. And see, if God is your greater passion, if he's the greater desire, it doesn't matter how others see you as a Christian. What matters is being in his presence and having the fullness of God in your life. Do you know how to deal with the brokenness and the struggles that you have in life? If you don't, that passion just doesn't have the opportunity to be cultivated. And then I think third, there are times where I think we just don't believe that we need God. You know, I love the words of C.S. Lewis. He, his writing style and, and the pictures that he paints stir in me a passion for God. And in this letter, he was writing this letter to his friend Harry, and Harry was asking him about his prayer life because, see, his wife had terminal cancer. And, and he was asking, you know, Lewis, C.S., whatever, I forgot his first name. Anyways, uh, how are you doing? What's going on? How has your prayer life changed? And this is how, this is how he responded. Actually, I didn't, I didn't put it in my notes, so here it comes. You ready for this? You were going to see it on the screen, but guys, I'm sorry. It just, it's not there. Here's how, here's how Lewis responded. He said, that's not why I pray, Harry. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleep, sleeping. It doesn't change God, but it changes me. See, in his time of greatest need, he was saying, the reason I pray, I pray certainly for my wife's healing, but the reason I pray is because I desperately need God's presence in my life. And then finally, I think we don't cultivate this passion because we don't know what we're missing. Maybe we haven't experienced that sense of his presence, or maybe we have, and it's been such a long time. Or maybe we thought that that's just a passing thing. Or maybe we've believed in the lie that it's not for us today. Sometimes we don't know what we need. Again, Lewis, speaking on this, describes God's presence in our need this way. There it is. That's the quote I was going to read for you guys earlier, okay? This is how technology works, and it's not working. It's, it's the computer's fault. So let me jump on to the next quote. Here's C.S. Lewis. He says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants, us, wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Sometimes we simply do not know what it is that we're missing. And so what is the solution? What's the solution? In, in chapter 3, verse 2, there's this little phrase that you may even throw away 
and yet it's incredibly important. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. That is the gospel in a nutshell. It's the gospel according to Habakkuk. Now, what do I mean? One of the greatest struggles in the Old Testament, certainly for the prophets, is they would ask, God, how can you be so holy and yet merciful? How can you be just and forgiving? They couldn't understand because they knew the evil in the world is also the evil in me. The injustice in the world is the injustice in me. And if God comes and addresses the injustice in the world, well, that could mean he has to destroy me. If he's gonna destroy the evil and the brokenness, what is he gonna do about the brokenness in my own heart? And, and they thought the blood of bulls and goats, it's not sufficient, it's not enough. And so God, in wrath, remember mercy. This was the place of struggle, the paradox in their mind, the seeming contradiction between God's goodness and yet his justice, and they couldn't quite grasp it. But see, through the gospel, through Jesus, we see how God's mercy, we see how his goodness and kindness and his justice come together in a revelation that astounds us and leads us to a place of passion and joy and commitment to him. And it's found in Titus chapter three, if you wanna turn there, Titus three, verses three through seven. And he begins by describing where we were before we came to faith in Christ. And he says, for we ourselves were once foolish. We were once foolish. We were once disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hated by others, hating one another. This was our natural condition. What would you give someone who is like this? You know, when we find the ungrateful and the evil, we want to shame the evil. We want to punish the ungrateful. That's not the character of our God. Listen to how his mercy shows up. But, but, here's the gospel. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done, and righteousness, not because we got our life together, not because we cleaned it up. No, remember, we're back here in verse four. We were foolish, disobedient, led astray, led to various passions, and yet God saved us not because we got things together, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, how does this change happen? How does this passion in the heart, it's not something that is just gonna be created out of you unless you have a vision of God's mercy and God's justice meeting on the cross. That hunger, that passion, it's not gonna come alive. You know what the Holy Spirit longs for? It longs to see Jesus. What the Holy Spirit is sent for is to enliven the truth of Jesus, the conviction, the truth, the reality of Christ on the heart. What the Holy Spirit loves to do is to project the glories and the wonders of God upon our hearts and our minds and our emotions to overwhelm us so that the things of our day, the emotions of our day, the frustrations of our day seem small in light of the glory of grace. And here's what has to happen. The solution to the challenges that leads us to intimacy is seeing where God's justice and his mercy come together and to see how God has given us the relationship, the mercy that belongs to Jesus, and he's placed on Jesus the punishment and brokenness that belongs to us. Because see, Jesus came in all grace and truth. 
He was the very glory of God, and yet he emptied himself. He emptied himself so that you and I, who had rebelled against God, who were foolish, who had, who had, who had rejected God, who were ungrateful, who were evil, you and I, that in Jesus, our sin would be punished in him so that upon us, his mercy, his righteousness, the relationship Jesus had with the Father would be given to us. And the more that we dive deep into the reality of where we were, our own brokenness, and in days and times of frustrations, you know, sometimes there's moments where I look at the behavior of someone else and, and I get angry, <laughs> I get frustrated. And then I start to stop and I go, wait a minute, um, my vision is, is too much on the horizon. God, I, I need to get my minds up. I need to see things through the lens of the gospel. And when that frustration I have in others that they're not doing what they should or they're creating a mess, you know what has to happen? I've got to lift my eyes off on others and start to lift my eyes up upon the mercy and the grace of God. And I start to see myself as God saw me before I ever came to him, my foolishness, my wickedness, my brokenness, my ungrateful attitudes, my impatience, and to know that God poured out his mercy on that guy, the one who didn't clean things up. And when that truth becomes a reality, when his grace meets my brokenness, there is something in the heart through the Holy Spirit that alivens us, that opens our eyes to his mercy and to his grace and says, you know, I wanna be with the one who wants to be with me. I wanna be with the one who would send his son to be with me. I, I read this story this week and it was about a missionary who had, who had gone to India and he had uh, experienced, he'd gone to this church and it was a church that was uh, for lepers in this community. And every time he went to this church, the praise was ecstatic. Uh, the joy was, was any, more than anything he'd ever experienced. And he went a couple of times and finally he asked the pastor, he said, is every Sunday, is every Sunday like this? And the pastor said, yes. And this missionary said, well, why? And, and the pastor said to him, you know, no one in the world wants them, but they know that God wants them and they wanna be with the one who wants to be with them. Now that's both painful and exhilarating. They want to be with the one who longs to be with them. If God went to the extent of sending Jesus into our lives to be with us, why would we not? Why would we not silence the world? Why would we not be still before his presence? Why not in these days, though the blossom falls and the fig tree fails and though disaster may come, why would we not rejoice in the one who rejoices in us being with him? He is our bridegroom who has come. He's laid down his glory so that we might simply rest in who he is and what he has done and find our identity and our strength in his strength. Hey, this week, let's, let's cultivate simply being with Jesus. Let's cultivate what it means to be still before him. And at times of difficulty say, God, I know one day your presence is gonna cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Cover my emotions, cover my mind, cover me right now in your presence. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for the words of the psalmist who tell us we do live in a dry and weary land. And Father, forgive us because we run to the things in the world as if they can satisfy. And I know right now there's those that are listening that are running, they're running to things that are leading to pain, adding greater frustration. They're allowing their hearts just to walk in a place of anger. 
in a place of resentment. Father, in Jesus' name, show them your mercy. You are the God who is merciful and kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, stir in us a vision for who you are. Show us your mercy once again. Father, show us your kindness once again. Show us a vision for who you are and the life that you want for us. And this week, Lord, would we learn simply to rest in your presence, to trust in moments of frustration that you are there, that Father, you are good and you're at work. Would we remember your faithfulness in the past? And Father, in these days, would we seek simply to rejoice in you and be that light into this community now that learns to do justice, to love mercy, and then most of all, just simply to walk humbly with you. Father, guide us in these days, we ask in Jesus' name.